0: It's particularly the 11th verse of Exodus 24 that I want to uh, centre our thoughts on this morning from this glorious passage, Exodus 24. And that verse 11 says, And upon the nobles of children he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. You will have perhaps picked up from the reading the repetition of that word covenant Uh, within the narrative here and this is really about the concluding aspects of the forming and the ratification of the old covenant between God and Israel. God having rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt, having brought them out of bondage and they're not yet in the promised land but it won't Uh, be too long in in terms of absolute time really before they are in the promised land. And that in itself is a picture, a type, uh, is how it's described in the Bible, uh, a type of redemption that we are delivered through Christ from the bondage of sin and we're brought into the promised land of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and that will blossom ultimately into heaven itself. So even as we look at this Old Testament passage, we also should have in mind that this is pointing forward to Jesus Christ and his salvation. Now, in the ancient Near East, that is in the part of Israel or of, um, I suppose, Sinai, uh, that this is um, relating to, when a covenant was made between various parties, quite often between two neighbouring kings, the conclusion of that agreement or that covenant was marked by eating a meal together. And often, particularly if we're thinking of pagan kings, which is what the vast majority of them would have been, of course, if not all of them, often what they would do is they would sacrifice to their gods and then... They would have that meal together based on those animal sacrifices. And we we see here God's wonderful way of dealing with people because he takes things, he takes customs, uh, he takes the way societies worked and he uses that to show things about himself. It is God accommodating to the people of Moses' time And, of course, through understanding that, we understand how he draws near to us in this way. They would have understood what was involved here as they saw the Lord God of Israel and they did eat and drink. This was the conclusion, the concluding part of this covenant arrangement between God and his people. And we see in this some astonishing anticipations of the ministry of Christ. Let's look first at that phrase, also they saw the God of Israel. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you will know that no one has seen God at any time. That's what the Apostle John tells us. Because God dwells in absolute glory. Even the angels cannot look at him, even the unfallen angels cannot look at him, such is his glory, such is his majesty and his beauty. There is a word that hymn writers use to describe it. It is the word ineffable, which means literally too great to be expressed or described in words. Now, there's a sense in which we cannot use that word because when Scripture tells us something, it is entirely sufficient to describe what it is saying. But we know what the hymn writer means. There's something so surpassing that it's almost beyond human language when we think of the glory of God. And that is why descriptions of God in his glory are often couched in terms that are symbolic. It isn't that these terms are lacking in truth. It is rather that the truth is even more wonderful but the terms point to a, a glorious truth. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verses 26 and following, we have a description of a, revel- a revelation of God to the prophet Ezekiel. Above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the, as the appearance of a man above upon it And I saw as the colour of amber as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward. And I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about it, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And you see how Scripture so couches it. He uses that word as all the time and the appearance of. And yet what it says is absolutely accurate and true. This is a, a revelation of God in all his glory. This is a revelation that tells us of the blaze, the holy blaze of unveiled deity. The, the surpassing beauty of God. Such descriptions are taken up in the book of Revelation Uh, and particularly thinking of chapter 4 after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and he describes what he sees I was in the spirit and behold a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald so we are met even this morning in the presence of of this glorious, surpassingly holy, beauty, majestic being called God, this triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're met in his presence. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who people deny when they say that uh, the world was not made by God. It's him we are fellowshipping with. And yet, as John's Gospel says, no man has seen God at any time. So, how do we see him? How do these people in Scripture see even what they see? Well, the answer is, as John goes on to say, but the only begotten that dwells in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so we have to conclude that such visions as they have here in Exodus 24 of God, uh, the God of Israel, there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. You see a clear link there between that and the passages I've already read to you. We have to conclude that this is a sight of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, before his incarnation. Because no man has seen God at any time. And what they see, what they saw was Christ. And just as these elders, these 70 elders and uh, the two priests, or sorry, the three priests, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and Moses, uh, just as they were there in the presence of Moses, the mediator of this old covenant, So they were there on the mountain in the presence of Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. And just as Moses came with the words of God, as we've read in this passage, all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, as he came as a prophet, he came as a priest at this point in his ministry with the blood in the basin to sprinkle on the altar and to sprinkle it on the people, He came as a priest, he also came as a king, as a ruler, as it were, of this group and of Israel. So they were in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is the prophet, the priest, and the king of his people. Moses was just a symbol, a type, of that greater work of God. And what they are engaging in here is an astonishing anticipation of that greater moment when God in Christ would be amongst his people and he would sit with them in a room in a Passover meal and he would be with them and they would eat and drink with him and they would see God. They saw the God of Israel. Now we cannot see God Like that, of course, we will not see him like that until he returns. But we can see him by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, wonderful verses, chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. He said it's like looking in a a glass or an ancient Near East mirror, some sort of polished thing. You can see something there, there's a reflection, but it's not perfect. And that is what we see as we look by faith, as we look at what the Bible describes of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we see that by faith. And In our spirits, we're being changed from glory to glory as we believe that. And then chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They saw the God of Israel, and so, dear friends, by faith we do too. And, of course, we have the added help that Jesus Himself commanded the help of the symbols of the Lord's Supper that points to His broken body and His shed blood. And we read, secondly, that they did eat and drink. Now, what did they eat and drink? Well, it would seem likely, we're not told exactly, but it would seem almost certain that when in verse 5, the young men of the children of Israel had offered the burnt offerings and the sacrifice, the peace offerings of oxen, that they would have kept some of those parts of the animal and would have brought them up uh, to this place where they had this covenant meal. In other words, they were very likely eating part of the animal sacrifice, just as the priests did later under the old covenant arrangements. And as they ate, of course, and if they ate with faith, they were looking forward to, they were anticipating God's provision of Christ. And those animal sacrifices pointed to the final great sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself upon the cross for us. That is why the phrase the blood is often used to symbolize those sacrifices, because the blood speaks of violent death. Not just an animal dying of disease or old age or something, but an animal that's been sacrificed in the prime of life. And it points forward to Jesus Christ, who at the age of 33, uh, he was cut off from his life and from his people. And it points forward to him. So they, at looking to him, and we too eat and drink, but we, we, of course, look backwards. Just as they pointed forward, the symbols of the Lord's Supper point backwards. It is a covenant meal that we are taking together in the Lord's Supper. Let me just read to you what is said in Luke chapter 22 about the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, i read from verse 14 to 20. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new testament or the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. You see what he's doing here is at the end of the Passover meal and it's the final Passover meal. There's no need of any more Passover meals because Christ is our Passover. So at the end of that, He brings in a new meal. They've already had food together and they've drunk wine together, but now he takes the bread, the unleavened bread it would be, and he gives thanks and breaks it and gives it to them and says, this symbolizes my body, this is my body, and then the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. He is replacing The Passover meal with this Lord's Supper because he himself is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is our Passover lamb. As Hebrews chapter 9 says, Christ neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus Christ, his sacrifice is not uh, just a repetition of the Old Testament Offering up of animals. It's he himself. Who is the sacrifice. As he says. In another place. He says my flesh is meat indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh. And drinketh my blood dwelleth in me. And I in him. In other words he who participates. By faith. In this sacrifice of myself. For sinners. And so there's a a very real sense. In which, although the symbols are so different, and the context is so different, and yet there's a very real sense that just like these nobles, these elders of the children of Israel, we see the God of Israel and we do eat and drink. And it's a remarkable sense of fellowship that comes over in this verse. It's something Almost, not quite, but almost alien to the ethos of the Old Testament. As we see that the writer himself, Moses himself, he realizes that because he says, upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Let's just dwell on that phrase for a moment. He laid not his hand. Why did he need to say that? Well, because if you read in the earlier parts of this covenant arrangement and ratification you'll read that the people are told not to come anywhere near it not to come anywhere near god exodus 19 just before the giving of the ten commandments we read about thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud and the people trembling people being terrified as sinai it it, it quakes and there's smoke and there's this voice which goes louder and louder. And the people just can't bear it. And it isn't that they uh, want to go to the mount. They, 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 don't go, they don't go anywhere near it. There's terror because this is a revelation of God in his holiness to sinful man. This is a revelation of God who is a consuming fire. And if he is most glorious and most beautiful, he is also most holy. And the writer to the Hebrews uh, mentions that as he speaks about uh, to the Christians in his day, he says, You are not come unto the mount that might be touched and burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice they heard entreated that, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. You haven't come near to that, he says. That's true, that's what God is like, but you haven't come near to God in that sense, but you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Upon the nobles of Israel he laid not his hand. This was astonishing in the context. Of that revelation of God in his holiness in the giving of the law. Which exposes and condemns our sins and yet Moses says God didn't lay a hand on them. Because what we have here is an anticipation of the very days in which we live. Here we have uh, not, uh, not just Moses but we have Moses, three priests, Seventy elders, representatives of the whole nation of Israel. And it's again an anticipation of all believers one day participating in the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. Just bear in mind there are times when the Old Testament seems to break into New Testament eras. You think of Adam and Eve, the very first sinners, being saved And God clothing them with animal skins, the skins of sacrifice. And Eve, believing in that promise of life to come, of of one who will bring life. Think of Enoch, only the seventh generation from Adam. And he doesn't even die, he doesn't even see death. Think of the prophet Jonah and his preaching to a whole Gentile nation the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and they all repented. These amazing moments when it's as though uh, Jesus Christ comes so near. And dear friends, we're not living in those kinds of days. We are living in this day when he has come and he has come near and we uh, and we can by faith see the God of Israel, we can see Jesus Christ, his son, and we can eat and drink and Upon us he does not lay his hand. Isn't that astonishing? That he doesn't lay his hand upon us. This holy God. Who we shall stand before one day. And give an account of ourselves. Who we must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. In order to stand in that day. We must know the sprinkling of the blood upon our conscience in this life. In order to stand in that day. Uh, And here we are. And we can... See God and eat and drink, and upon us he will not lay his hand. In fact, he doesn't just accept us, he invites us as his children to this feast. He calls us sons and daughters of the living gods. What worship there should be in our hearts. But let me just say this just occurs to me, as I've said what I've said, that if you eat and drink this supper unworthily, that means not looking to and with no intention of considering as your Saviour, Jesus Christ and his death, then he will lay his hand upon you. 1 Corinthians 11 makes that clear. That's why there were Christians at Corinth who died prematurely. That's why there were Christians at Corinth who were sick when they sh- needn't have been sick. I'm not saying everyone who dies early or, uh, or is unwell is thereby being chastised for the wrong use of the Lord's Supper, but I am saying that at Corinth, that's what happens. He doesn't, by the way, say they weren't Christians, he just says that God chastised them. He laid his hand upon them, and he did that in order that they might not be condemned with the world. They saw the God of Israel. They did eat and drink. There had to be joy. There had to be delight. There had to be a sense of intimacy and communion, which is astonishing in this context. Well, may we have a sense of wonder as we take the Lord's Supper together.